Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and you all know I love a good cult story, so I am thrilled to have author and linguist Amanda Montel to join me today. Amanda is the author of Word Slut, A Feminist Guide to Taking Back the English Language, and in her latest book, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, she discusses the patterns and language that lead to cults and cult-like behavior. The Stacks Book Club pick for November is Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. We will be discussing this book on the show on Wednesday, November 24th with Donnie Walton. If you love the show and want to be a part of our exclusive community, The Stacks Pack, join us on Patreon. You get a whole bunch of perks like our virtual book club and bonus episodes. And anyone who joins from now until the end of November will get The Stacks 2022 Reading Tracker. So head to patreon.com slash The Stacks to join and support your favorite bookish podcast. I'd now like to take a quick moment to shout out some of our newest members of The Stacks Pack, Andrea Tidrow. Hannah, Amanda Osborne, Megan Butler, Kathy Clark, Jacqueline Hearn, Allison, and Becca Andrews. I really could not make this show without you and the rest of the Stacks Pack. So thank you. All right. Now it's time for my conversation with Amanda Montel. All right, everybody. As you all know, I love a cult. So I am very excited to have the literary, I guess, queen of cults, shall we say, oh. Amanda Montel. She's the author of Word Slut, A Feminist Guide to Talking, Taking Back the English Language, and Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism. Amanda, welcome to the Stacks. Oh, thank you so very much. Flattery will get you everywhere. Also, I like the subtitle, A Feminist Guide to Talking. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's sort of also the other version that I read. That was my big take. very well could be titled that. That's a little less cumbersome. I like that better. Well, you know, and your your reissue, you can, you can have the title for free. I'll just gift it to you, my brilliance. Um, that's super generous. I want to let people at home know I loved Word Slut so much. So I know that we're talking about cultish today, but we're also definitely talking about word slut today. So in about 30 seconds or so, can you tell us just about cultish for folks who are not familiar? Of course. So uh, cultish is about the language of cults from Scientology to Soul Cycle. Really, it's about cult influence, cultish influence, and how it imbues our everyday lives and the proof of our various cultish affiliations is in the way that we speak. Um, my argument is that uh, language is the most powerful cult tactic of them all. I cannot wait to get into this because I have a lot of questions about the language and I kind of want to know if I myself am running a cult according to some of your standards. So we'll get there. But I want to know how you decide what you want to write about because the topics, while of course you're a linguist, the topics are sort of seemingly very different, So I'm, but they're also connected in a lot of ways. So I'm wondering <laughs> what is sort of your creative through line when you're thinking like, this is what I want to write about next. Sure. Well, there are a number of angles from which I can approach this question. Well, I guess this is sort of like a market marketing-esque uh, <laughs> answer, but words that I, I was really just the book that the publishing industry would let me write. Mm. My background is in linguistics. It's what I studied in college for a while when I was like in my early 20s. I was 
telling people that I wanted to grow up to be a pop linguist and write about linguistics for general audiences. And that was met with a lot of like skepticism and head scratches. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll have to pivot and (laughs) come up with something that doesn't make people confused. But I, you know, I had so many different book ideas, um, all nonfiction when I was uh, very early in my career aspiring to be an author. But when I finally got on the phone with a literary agent and was word vomiting all of my book ideas, she thought that the language and gender stuff that I was interested in would be um, the most like sellable Mm. idea from me. And I was delighted by that because I thought that my linguistics degree would be <laughs> mostly useless. So that's how sort of word slut came to be. I had I, I had been making really cringy YouTube videos okay. um, that served as sort of the proof of concept for word slut just like in my free time. Um, I beg you not to look them up. You know, I'm going to uh, link but, them in the show notes. So yeah, can't wait. Oh, <laughs> uh, God, I'm so embarrassed by those. But um, but no, I'm proud of her. She she was trying to figure out what she needed to say. Right. <laughs> and so um, that was how Word Slut came to be. But genuinely, my whole life, I've just been fascinated by the relationship between language and power, um, how using language a certain way can work to cultivate an identity, a personality, can um, cause you to access power or not access power in certain ways. So um, that's all sociolinguistics, which is a field that I didn't know existed until I got to college. So while right before, well, a few months before Wordslut came out, I came up with the idea for cultish to write this book about the language of cults. It seemed like the natural next step to stick with the linguistics theme, mm. but to write about something that I would read. You know, right. Wordslut was was what I studied in college. So I like kind of like already knew that stuff right, and then right, right. was delighted to share it with others. But I didn't know anything about the language of cults, whatever that meant or didn't mean. Um, but the idea was um, it was inspired by a few things. I mean, I grew up with a cult survivor in the family and my dad spent his teenage years in a pretty notorious cult called Synanon. And my parents are research scientists. So I grew up in this incredibly skeptical mm-hmm. household full of independent thinkers who were, you know, maybe a little bit disdainful <laughs> of fringy religions and mystical beliefs, especially considering my dad's background. But of course, that only made me totally enraptured right, by these right. groups. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the idea for cultish snapped into focus for me when I was chatting with um, my best friend who had recently gotten sober and um, was telling me about AA and the vernacular of AA, if anyone knows anyone in recovery, is like so distinct right. um, and so sort of culty yeah. sounding. And I was like, dang, I got to write about this. But not just talking about cults like the People's Temple and Heaven's Gate, but really talking about the cultishness that imbues our everyday lives, which I've always been really keenly sensitive to because of my parents and my dad's stories and all of that. So like if you're listening to someone talk about something that they're super into, like let's say your friend (laughs) starts going to one of those cryo chamber things, you know, I'm just, I've been in one. I've done that. I hate cold more than anything. It's like, you couldn't pay me probably. Well, you could pay me, but I wouldn't like it. But anyways, like, let's say someone, you know, starts doing something like that. That's like a new kind of like trendy. Are you listening to how they're talking about it to be like, oh, this place is like not a cult because I mean, the whole conceit of the book is like that the language that people like Jim Jones used while what he was saying was maybe further, you know, into cult land than the language of soul cycle, there's some overlap in how the language is being manipulated. So I'm wondering if like you're so plugged into that, that if someone starts talking about like their new favorite grocery store or something, you're like, oh, maybe this grocery store has like culty vibes going on. Oh, yeah. I mean, language is the lens through which I hear the world. So There are times when I can barely focus on the content of what someone is saying because I'm like so fascinated by the way they pronounce their R's or something like that. Not not judging it. Not like I'm a like a grammar fascist. Like I, I don't care about prescriptive language. I care very much about how people do speak and why they speak the way we do. They do and what that reflects and what it means about who they are. Um. I'm not interested in how people should talk. So there's a difference there. There's a difference between being prescriptive and being descriptive, um, 
which is why I love linguistics so much and why it's <laughs> important for people to understand that it's different from like elocution or like grammar. Anyway, um, yes, when I'm listening to someone, I'm totally paying attention to, you know, what it might say about their experiences. And cultish language now is something that I cannot unhear no matter how hard I try. Certainly in Los Angeles, you can't go right. to a birthday party without running into someone who's involved with some kind of cult or quote unquote cult. So yes, I'm definitely tuned into, you know, are they using, you know, special us them terminology, buzzwords, mantras, shibboleths, thought terminating cliches, all that good stuff. I know I want you to sort of run through a few of those for the audience just so they kind of understand what isn't not don't give it all away because the book's really good. So I don't want people I don't want you to give all your genius away. But can you explain like a few <laughs> things from the book that maybe are like the the most no, I feel like thought terminating cliches are like the thing that really stuck with me. But maybe there's a few other things where you're like, these were big pillars of the cultish language. Absolutely. Yeah. The thought terminating cliche. Ugh. It's one of these things where once you understand what it sounds like, you're going to hear it everywhere. So this is a phrase that was coined in the early 1960s by a psychologist named Robert J. Lifton. And a thought-terminating cliche describes a sort of stock expression that's easily memorized, easily repeated, and aimed at shutting down independent thinking or questioning. So questioning, scrutiny, is obviously the enemy to any cults. They cannot have people pushing back because that will unravel their whole structure and their whole plan. So whenever anyone expresses any sort of dissent, they're going to need a roster of these semantic stop signs, if you will, to alleviate that person's cognitive dissonance and get them to stop thinking for a while. It's work to think. It's a relief not to have to. Right. It's a relief not to have to think like, oh, I so badly want to believe in this group that I've invested so much time, money, energy, resources into. And yet I'm feeling this instinct that something is amiss, something is exploitative. When someone serves you with one of these really catchy, zingy expressions, it makes you feel like, OK, I can kind of relax or stop thinking about that for a little while. Um, so folks who are familiar with Nexium might recognize a Nexium thought terminating cliche in the form of something like dismissing a valid anxiety or doubt as a limiting belief. Mm. Um, you'll hear that a lot in sort of new agey and self-help circles in QAnon and conspirituality. That's portmanteau of conspiracy theorists and spirituality for those unfamiliar, you know, the, the anti-vax yoga mom types. Got it. Um, you often hear things like trust the plan or, well, I did my research. Mm. Do your research. Right. But thought terminating cliches show up in our everyday lives as well. Things like, well, boys will be boys right. or everything happens for a reason. And when a group has too many of these zingy expressions that are there to you know, avoid having to reevaluate why certain things are the way are, they are or why certain people are in power who maybe shouldn't be, that's definitely a red flag. Um, yeah, thought terminating cliches. <laughs> there's, that's such like, I, I never thought about it like that. But like, you know, as a person who reads a lot and listens to people talk a lot and talks to people a lot, I know that there's something wrong there, right? Like when you hear one, if you're expressing your concerns and then someone says that back to you, you know like that it doesn't feel good. Like thinking of everything happens for a reason. That's one of my least favorite things because it usually is being said to you when you're like someone you love has died or like you lost your job or something terrible has happened. And then it's like everything happens for a reason. It's like, well, fuck you. Actually, no. Totally. And like that feeling if you're on the receiving end is like so horrible, but in the book, you talk about how a lot of the times for people who want to buy in, it's actually really freeing and it's actually a great thing because it means that they don't have to think about the hard stuff. They can just, you know, trust the process or whatever, whatever sure. thing it is. Okay. Well, I was just going to add really quickly yeah. that like I, I talk a lot in the book about the language of toxic positivity, oh. particularly in the parts of the book where I um, talk about multi-level marketing cults. Um, and various, you know, like spiritual influencers and such. And, you know, particularly for folks who are born and raised and socialized in the United States who are brought up with, you know, the Protestant ethic, you know, the basis for what became the American dream. 
we we grow up really valuing a lot of toxically positive ideas, including meritocracy, you know, the idea that those right. who achieve their success really deserve it and those who don't just weren't worthy. And so a lot of thought terminating cliches that groups that are popular among Americans, you know, Americans and cults have a pretty consistent relationship for various reasons. But some of these toxically positive uh, thought terminating cliches like, well, it's all in God's plan and everything happens for a reason, um, really say a lot about our culture and our particular like fears and neuroses and values. Right. Right. I know. I, th- I think it's so interesting to think about all of this, not just through the language lens, but also through the you know country of origin, right? Like in England, mm-hmm. they're speaking English as well, but it's going to be different. They're going to have different value systems or political, whatever this and that, that makes certain cults seem maybe totally off base or more relatable or whatever. And I think that's like such an interesting part of all of this. Oh, for sure. I mean, cultural normativity has almost everything to do with whether a group is considered a cult versus a mainstream religion versus another kind of ideologically bound group. You know, so often it's not about the actual dangers or abuses or wacky beliefs on the table. It's just about, you know, I mean, there's this classic quote in religious studies that cult plus time equals religion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that's like I feel like Mormonism comes to mind there because it's like a newer Mm -hmm. religion. And so there's more questions around it versus like Catholicism where they do, you know, a lot of similar performance elements and all that stuff. Were you surprised by how similar the language of cults were once you started like kind of building your book and your thesis and kind of breaking it down as you started to write the book versus like where you came in with like, I want to write about this thing? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The structure of the book and actually the entire thesis changed completely from when I came up with the idea and when I started researching it, because I like a lot of people, you know, buy into this this idea that someone can be brainwashed, literally like you can. I don't know, perform some kind of like magic spell (laughs) that causes someone to believe things that they would have never otherwise believed. And I, 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 I set out to write this book about how language brainwashes us. But very quickly starting to talk to religious studies scholars and sociologists, it became clear that brainwashing is really this metaphor that we take very seriously and can sometimes serve as a thought terminating cliche itself when you write off a whole group as being brainwashed. Mm -hmm. It really dehumanizes people and discounts the actual methods of coercion and conditioning and manipulation that were at play. And that's a much more interesting line of thinking, in my opinion, than to just say like, oh, they were brainwashed. So um, yeah, quickly, I realized that that brainwashing is hard to prove. You can't prove it exists. You can't prove it doesn't exist. Um, And so that we need to be thinking about language's effect on us differently. Also, because you can't really convince someone to believe something that they don't want on any level to believe. Right. And that's a tough pill to swallow, but really like you can't like brainwash someone into signing up for a belief system that they weren't on some level already amenable to. You can just radicalize them further and further and turn their beliefs a little bit more extreme. But those techniques are not necessarily going to work on everyone. And this is another surprising thing. They're not going to work on the people who you might think. Hmm. So I had a lot of, of myths dispelled very quickly upon talking to my sources. Why aren't all people using cult language at all times to get what they want. Like what distinguishes the use of this kind of language from just everyday speak versus someone who you would consider cultish? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty nebulous. Um, And this is why I often talk about this cultish spectrum. It's not like, you know, there is this point past which something is definitively a cult. Um, A lot of the scholars that I spoke to disagree about what makes something a cult. Um, Actually, there's some cultishness even going on within the cult scholar community. (laughs) There are like really vehement disagreements about how we should be thinking about cults and treating people who are survivors of cults and such, which has been interesting to observe and try to steer clear from. But 
You know, it's it is a tricky question to to answer. Obviously, cultish language and marketing language have mm-hmm. some things in common. Mm-hmm. Um, if you Google like how to create, you know, a strong company culture in your in your business, you'll come up with or Google will serve you so many results teaching you like how to structure your company like a cult. Not even kidding. Like there are so many listicles, like articles in the freaking Harvard Business Review and such about this sort of thing. But I will say there is a pretty significant difference between sort of like niche jargon that you might find in any given professional field and cultish language. And um, in my view, the difference is that for example, I mentioned my my parents are scientists and they use a lot of really specialized terminology to talk about their research that I can't understand. But a lot of that terminology is there to make communication more succinct, more clear. It's about conveying information. But cultish language does does just the opposite. So you might find yourself in a community of people, a fitness studio, a, a startup, whatever it is, where They're using specialized buzzwords, chants, mantras, acronyms, abbreviations that don't signify anything that can't be said in plain English. Mm. They're really there to make communication actually more hazy, more unclear, more cumbersome, because the language is not there for information. It's there for these ulterior motives to establish an us and a them, to discourage independent thinking, to encourage conformity to silence dissent. And, you know, I've worked in my fair share of startups and other businesses that use language like this. And it always like sets off that radar that we were talking about before. And I'm like, this is culty. Yeah. It's because it's not there for what language is supposed to be there for, um, which is, you know, well, at least genuine, genuine and authentic, non-Machiavellian language is there, you know, for communication um, in an authentic way. And this type of language has this pretty nefarious subtext. Yeah. I used to work at Flywheel, which was a SoulCycle competitor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> less culty than SoulCycle by a mile, mm-hmm. but also like supremely less cool than SoulCycle <laughs> also, you know, like we had celebs and like, you know, whatever, but it was not as culty and therefore like not as culty. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, cultishness and this feeling of exclusivity have to go hand in hand. And what makes something cool is to make something exclusive. And I think, you know, SoulCycle isn't as big of a thing now as it was like five years ago. And I think that's in part because they are trying to sort of toe this line between being exclusive and being inclusive at the same time. And you can't really, you can't really like, do that. that off. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Flywheel was like, we're for everyone. And I was like, oh, so this sucks. Like, I want to be at SoulCycle. <laughs> Just kidding. I actually loved Flywheel. I, I like the ride better. But anyways. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about Wordslet. And I want to start with sort of talking about you as a person. I never like to talk about identity politics so much, but I find your positionality as a younger uh, white woman talking about language and saying words like like and literally in a non-literally way and embracing sort of the language that I use as a millennial. And I think we're similar age. I think you're a millennial. Yeah, I'm a millennial. Okay, sure. that's I'm right. almost thirty. Uh, okay, okay. I thought we, I thought we were on the same age. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about that. Like when you walk into a room and you say, "I'm a linguist," and I know this kind of came up in it comes up in word slot with a mom of a college friend who sort of tells you, "Like, don't do that. You sound dumb or whatever." And you're mm-hmm. like, "Listen, bitch," and you like give her the whole <laughs> linguistics rundown. But I sort of want to know what that's like for you entering these spaces that I have to imagine aren't super wild about some of the stuff that you're talking about and the way that you're talking about it for like everyday people and not talking about it in these academic ways. So can you kind of talk a little bit about your identity in the space that you occupy? Sure. Well, I occupy a space that's, you know, adjacent to academia, but not academia. You know, I don't have a PhD and was very reticent about even owning this linguistics title until like a group of linguists gave me their blessing. They're like, you're spreading the gospel, speaking of cultish language. So I often find that I'm able to navigate whatever space I'm in pretty well in the way that all of us do. You know, 
everyone sort of naturally and unconsciously changes their register code switches, if they, if you will, depending on what space you're in. And so, you know, sometimes I'll find myself um, doing talks at businesses that have this primarily like white male audience. And um, I'm someone who feels comfortable sort of meeting people where they are to a degree. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I think I have also via practice learned like what arguments tend to resonate with what audience better Mm. than others. Mm -hmm. So I have kind of a repertoire of, of clapbacks and whatnot, (laughs) you know, the the literally argument in particular, um, you know, the only, the only feedback I ever get that's like salty about my particular, um, idiolect, which is, uh, you know, an individual's personal way of speaking fun, fun fact, um, for those who don't know, is, uh, is in like, you know, iTunes reviewers of of uh, my my podcast. they love they love the way that I talk also um, let me tell you I, I was blamed once for I got a review once that was like she says like way too much and all of her guests to a T pick up this horrible tick and I was like wait you're blaming me for other people saying like get a grip <laughs> I do say it but like I'm not taking well, the blame there's this amazing um piece in the New Yorker that was written not long ago that said if white men had been the population to pioneer phrases like like and literally we'd be reading the like New Yorker so uh, yeah. <laughs> a main argument that I talk about in in word slut is like a default maleness default whiteness you know it's not really about the speech qualities or features themselves when we you know feel triggered by a young woman saying like and literally it's really about our preconceived notions of the speaker our judgments of the speaker and you know telling a woman she says like and literally too much is just objectification in the way that telling a woman her skirt is too short is objectification. And, you know, there have been countless think pieces written about how women need to stop using vocal fry to sound more authoritative and stop using hedges like, you know, and well, and actually to sound more authoritative. But linguists have actually done empirical research to show that these qualities are not there to express insecurity. They all have these incredibly purposeful intentions. And yes, they were in large part pioneered by young women because linguists have found time and time again that young women living in cosmopolitan environments tend to be our language's innovators. So if you want to know what mainstream English is going to sound like in 10 years, you know, listen to a young woman living in a city who has her finger on the pulse. And um, that's, you know, in, in large part, linguists have found because women often use language as a form of social power in environments where there aren't a lot of other power tools for them. So yeah, I mean, people will say shit about our speech <laughs> on the podcast and I don't care. I, I, I would dare them to say it to my face because then I could give them my monologue about the six different forms of the word like that are all homonyms and how they all serve a different function and how one is a discourse particle and a discourse marker. And then you have a verb and an adjective and an approximate and they're all wildly useful. But, you know, it's it's cowardly to uh, attack women anonymously on the Internet, but it's a tale as old as time or as old as the yeah. Internet, at least. Um, and so I'm not offended by that. But yeah, no, I, I mean, people love a fact and a figure. And mm-hmm. so if they if they want to, you know, critique my speech, I've, I've got a fact and a figure for them. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean, I think one of the things that I really loved about Word Slut and I have been holding with me since I read it earlier this year is I just felt really empowered reading the book because as a person who talks into a microphone for public consumption and as a person who, you know, I, my job in a sense is to read other people's work and critique it. And so I feel very cognizant that my work when I speak into a microphone and put it out on the internet is also up for critique. So as a person who does that, I felt really empowered because I understand why I say mm-hmm a lot. And having you say in the book, like saying mm-hmm isn't, you know, a sign of stupidity or whatever. It's like it, it's a minimal it's a, response. It's yeah, there like, because, you know, women often enter more sensitive territory in their conversations, not naturally, but because they're socialized too. And when you enter, you know, a conversation like that, you often need active listening skills to, you right. know, soften the conversation, to open the conversational floor. I mean, like the 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 research that has been done on minimal responses and hedges and all these linguistic techniques that not only women use, but that women are more 
nonprofit than not critiqued for. Um, the studies are fascinating. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that you found them empowering. <laughs> I, a, a thousand percent. And I've heard from other women who have read the book who felt similarly. So I'm sure you've also received that critique or that critique, that feedback. So one of the things you talk about are these hedges. So in an email, I know a lot of women are told to go back in and take out everywhere you put just or an exclamation mark uh -huh. or whatever. And that was one of the things that I had been taught. I used to work like I said, for Flywheel. And I was in management there before I taught. And I was constantly like being coached to go back and take out these things in my emails and all of that. And I want to, I want you to sort of explain a little bit why that's fucked up. Um, I know you mentioned some of it, but I just, I think it's so important for people to understand women and men and anyone who's ever coached someone to do something like that, why that is harmful or right. objectification or however you want to phrase Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's punishing women for their own oppression, right? So <laughs> right. women are socialized to be friendly and personable and delicate and soft. And so we have accommodated really savvily to these ridiculous expectations linguistically and otherwise. And so then all of a sudden when the the backdrop is an office um, and not the home where we're used <laughs> to women being, we're, we're very sensitive and the, like the margin of error for women's speech is incredibly narrow. And now all of a sudden they're forced to walk what's called a, the double bind of, you know, having to appear authoritative as managers are supposed to appear, but also appearing friendly and deferential as women are supposed to appear. And it's really an impossible line to walk. And so, you know, speaking authentically is really the best thing you, that you can do because, you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. But it's fucked up because when you're giving advice, like don't use so many exclamation points, etc., you're basically just asking women to accommodate to a masculine standard of speech, which is not actually inherently more authoritative or better or more confident, um, but is just seen that way because of how men are perceived in this culture. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm asked often by word slut readers, like I, I work in a male dominated space and I've been critiqued for my language before. And I worked in a female dominated space before uh, quitting to work for myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> and even then, you know, I remember like going through media training at some point because all of us editors I worked at a beauty magazine. Um, we were all supposed to like start doing Instagram lives and Facebook lives and stuff. And so we needed media training. And I remember um, I was critiqued for using like too much in casual speech. And the media trainer, who, who's a woman, who's a middle-aged white woman, she was like, yeah, you use like way, way too much. You're, you do come across as quite likable, but definitely using using like too much. And I thought it was ironic because she was using the you know adjective form of like to talk about how I was using like too much. I was like, oh, that's one of the six forums you want to talk about it. But also <laughs> linguists have found that speech lacking in likes and you knows and actually is, can come across as stilted or robotic. So I was like, what do you want me to do, lady? Right, like, right. I guarantee you if I sounded more professional by not, you know, and that's a judgment as well. By using uh, less likes, you probably wouldn't have had such a warm and fuzzy impression of me. But yeah, I I think that uh, we just need to to step back and, and think about, you know, where is this advice for how we should be speaking coming from? What is it motivated by? Um, and when people ask me, you know, I work in a male or female dominated space, I'm often critiqued for my language. What should I do? You know, my advice is not necessarily to like go to your boss and be like, I read this book called Word Slut. And they say that like <laughs> you're false. Um, that's not super realistic all the time. But what you can do is like return to your desk and know that there is nothing inherently wrong with you, that you are not innately less worthy of authority because you speak this way. So you might have to, you know, accommodate temporarily because of your situation. But then when one one day when you're the boss and you have a fleet of women that you've hired, you can resist perpetuating those same harmful standards. Yeah, I can't. That's the dream. Or I can just <laughs> I can just say just and like as much as I want in all yeah. my emails and no one can talk to me about it. Um, OK, I'm going to do a little critical, I don't know what you call this. It's not the right word. I'm going to do some comparative. That's what I'm going to do. Comparative analysis. In yes. Wordslet, you talk a lot about the evolution of language. And there's mm -hmm. a great section where you talk about all these different words that are gendered and how the 
female gendered version of the word has become like derogatory and bad. And the male version is basically the same. And so taking that idea, this evolution of language and bringing it to the cult book. See, look what I'm doing. This is I went to NYU like you. We're both geniuses. Give her a PhD in comparative literature. Thank you. Or just, yeah, I'll take anything. Just give me something great. Give me applause. Clap in your cars, people. Anyways, I I want to know if the language of cults, if you've seen a large evolution in that kind of language and what works and doesn't, or if that has remained relatively stagnant over Mm. the last, you know, I mean, I think the earliest cult we talk about in your book is Jonestown time-wise, but there are other references like who who predate that and like a religion and things like that too. So I'm kind of giving you a large time spectrum yes, to play yes. with. Well, I mean, the first concept I talk about in the book is like what even is the definition of the word right. cult? There is no hard and fast definition. So the oldest cults, I mean, cults are, are as old as, as human right. civilization, I would reckon, um, because craving community and spirituality and ritual and meaning um, is profoundly human. Uh, so I would say that that's very consistent. And the cult language's aims in order to manufacture that sense of transcendence and connection has been there forever. But the flavor <laughs> will change over time. There are consistent themes, but what's true in what I talk about in Wordslet and what I talk about in Cultish is that language and culture evolve or change, I should say, side by side. They're intertwined. They're inherently connected. And so if you look at the cult language of Heaven's Gate, for example, that was this 1990s doomsday cult um, that surrounded this idea that uh UFO was going to bypass Earth. And if all of the members took their own lives in this very specific ritualistic way, they could board the spacecraft uh, that would take them to the kingdom of heaven. So most of the members were these ex-Christians who were interested in this more new agey sci-fi answer to the world's most urgent and oldest questions. Why are we here? What makes my life meaningful? Where do we go when we die? Et cetera. Um, the 1990s was the era of like the X-Files and digital technology was providing like, again, new new information and new answers to questions we'd always had. And that's why so much of Heaven's Gate terminology sounded very sci-fi to us. It probably not, now sounds very dated in right. the Heaven's Gate universe. Um the kitchen was called the Nutri-Lab and the uh, laundry room was called the Fiber Lab. And when all of the members were in the mansion together where they lived, that was called InCraft. And when they were out in the in the regular world, that was called Out of Craft. Um, and this sort of, this language helped condition them to, to imagine themselves in this religious place where they wanted to be. Now, a theme that is similar in Heaven's Gate language and in a lot of like these new agey groups that you'll find is a marriage of sort of like old school Christian language hmm. with sci-fi language or um, sort of bastardized Eastern language. And that has to do with the fact that so so many sort of new agey fringy cults just take familiar evangelical rhetoric like mm. good evil binaries and being born in sin and and such and they will put this new like boho twist on them so <laughs> you'll find a lot of sort of like spiritual instagurus if you will talking about how we're all born in trauma which is a very similar message to being mm-hmm. born in sin and they'll talk about how we're on the brink of a paradigm shift or a great awakening which is similar to being on the brink of the rapture or the second coming. Um, So that's pretty consistent over the years. But the particular flavor that will resonate with the culture really reflects what's going on in larger society at the time. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question, then we'll take a quick break. The cover of Cultish, I want to know how it came to be. Because I, first of all, I love that it's pink. It's like the perfect millennial pink. But I want to know about the swoopies and everything. Oh, of course. Um, okay, so we're, we're talking about the cover of Cultish, right? Yeah, Cultish. Yes, okay. So um, I sent my publisher a very intense mood board and 
<laughs> keywords to keep in mind like a year in advance. Okay. <laughs> um, I can send you, I can, I'll send you the mood board. Cause okay, I'm, send it to me. Can I'm I share it? it? Can I share it? Yeah. Like in yeah, the show yeah. notes? Okay. Uh, absolutely. No, share, okay. share away. I was really inspired by the idea of combining really colorful and fresh uh, hues with psychedelic shapes, but also with sort of black and white collage images okay. for a like textural dimension. Okay. <laughs> because I wanted it to feel both retro and youthful, dark, but not too dark. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So we went through my poor designer. I mean, we went through probably like six rounds of notes, which is not typical. Normally, wow. a publisher will just be like, here's your cover. And unless you absolutely fucking hate it, you have to just kind of be like, great. But I I care a lot about the packaging, man. Right. And so the first version, I got a lot of different designs in the first round. And the shape that you see of like the swirls um, and the font that you see in the final version was the same, but there were only two colors. They were like a very burnt muted orange and a very burnt muted magenta. So very, very 70s. Um, and there was no UFO. So <laughs> we went through a few different color options, but in the end, I was like, I just want primary colors because that feels really fresh. Like the swirls still feel 70s, but primary yeah. colors feel new and I sent this reference for an, an image by the pop artist Aaliyah Penner, who I'm fucking obsessed with. Um, I hope I'm allowed to curse on your show. Well, yes, yeah, my we've already been cursing. Left. Okay. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I don't even notice. Um, and then I was like, and I want to put a UFO on the cover. And we went back and forth. And I got really nitpicky. Like, I don't know if this is too nitty gritty of a description, but there's like a fabric overlay on the swirls where there's like speckles in the text. And that was very important to me. Um, oh my gosh. So, I love yeah, this. We went back and forth a lot. And I'm so, so thrilled with the final result. It's very Instagrammable, which is important. And yeah. I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's such a great cover. Thank okay, you. we're going to take a quick break, then we'll be back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished, and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. All right, we're back. I want to know how you knew you were done with cultish, especially as so much is developing as it comes to like anti-vax, QAnon, January 6th, the November election, Trump's presidency in general. Yes. Like, how did you feel like, okay, I hit what I needed to hit with this present moment? Mm-hmm. Well, I knew I had to be done because of the deadline. Okay. <laughs> um, but my deadline, my like final, final, final deadline was a few months after January 6th. Okay. So, so you had time to include that. Things changed. Before January 6th, QAnon was still in the part of the book because um, just for some context for listeners, the book is structured such that in the first part of the book, I start out by talking about sort of the etymology of the word cults, cults role in society and the language that we use to talk about cults. So like, what does a cult even mean? What has it meant over time? And then every other section of the book is dedicated to a different sort of category of cults, starting with the most notorious destructive groups like Jonestown and Heavenscape, and then working toward cults like Scientology and some other like religious cults. And then we move on to MLMs and pyramid schemes. Then yes. we go to cult fitness, talking about SoulCycle, CrossFit and the like. And the last part is about social media cults, spiritual influencers, QAnon and conspirituality. The last part of the book changed a lot, though, after January 6th, because I wasn't quite sure what kind of legs QAnon was going to have. It was still in the book, but the book was, or it was still in part six of the book. But before it was a lot about like celebrity stan culture and like the blurry lines between celebrity, influencer, spiritual leader, business leader. And then QAnon just became, it. I mean, it just exploded onto the zeitgeist. And so I knew I had to pivot. Um, and so I, I, a lot of part six ended up on the cutting room floor. But this mm. is actually part of what inspired me to launch the podcast that I launched because like so so much couldn't be included in the book. I mean, cultish could have been so many different things. When I first pitched yeah. the book, there were like 12 different sections. There was going to be a section on like academia and fraternities and sororities and a oh, section wow. on like music, a section on sports fandoms. But it just would have been so unsatisfying to have a bunch of different like super short sections um, right, instead right, of right. these beefier but fewer ones. Um, so yeah, I just, I tried to incorporate all that was happening in real time in a way that still didn't feel dated, that that still felt like it would be relevant five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, <laughs> like heaven willing people are like reading my book uh, that far in the future. But I, yeah, I didn't want it to feel dated, but I still wanted it to feel urgent knowing the culture that this book was going to be published into. <laughs> right, right. I think you did a good job with that because I always wonder about these things as they're develop as you're writing and they're developing as we're going, just how that how that's going to play out. Okay. How do you like to write? How many hours a day? How often? Do you listen to music? Are you in your home? Do you like to go out? Are there snacks and beverages involved? <laughs> Talk to me. I love these craft questions so much because no one ever asks me this stuff. <laughs> I think this is sort of like the nonfiction author's like occupational hazard that like people are so excited to talk about the content, but yeah. I want to write in other genres too. Like I have a novel idea I'm itching to write. Like I, oh, I'm obsessed with craft. Like I, I went to school for linguistics and creative writing like this. So I thank you for asking. Of course. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, well, in the pandemic, I was forced to write at home, which I felt oh, very contained by right. um, because I, lo I love a coffee shop writing moment. So, you know, I like to, you know, suit up with my little backpack and uh -huh. I live in a walkable area. So I like to walk down to my local intelligentsia, like the Silver okay. Lake cliche that I am. And okay. I get uh, an iced oat cortado and a croissant. <laughs> um, or if I'm at Blue Bottle, I'll get a pretzel croissant. OK. Those okay. are bomb. Um, 
And I'll write for like maybe three hours, but it's a very like stoppy and starty three hours. Um, And I don't really have like a daily word count I'm trying to meet. I do outline, but my daily goals have more to do with what subject I'm covering that day. So maybe that's only one paragraph, but maybe it's five pages. But if I'm like, okay, tomorrow I need to cover this in whatever I'm working on. But I always set a writing goal that's like way lower than I think what I can actually meet because that helps me feel encouraged. Like I I always meet my goal because my goal is so low. Yeah. (laughs) My bar is so low. Um, But then I, I, I always meet deadlines ahead of time because I leave myself like more time than I think I need. But so I'll write for, you know, maybe two or three hours in the coffee shop. But then I'm sort of, I like pick away at my writing. I don't have like a precious ritual. I sort of just like write throughout the day and, and maybe I'll stop writing at like 6 p.m., but maybe I'll be writing late into the night. I don't want to kind of limit myself. And I'll sometimes, you know, I'm not the person to come up with this tactic, but sometimes I'll say like, okay, I'm going to sit down and just write like one sentence or I, or I get an idea and I'm like, ooh, I have to just write that down real quick in a, like an iPhone note. And then all of a sudden it's an hour later and I have like a thousand words. Um, So I try to just be like a kind of loosey goosey about it. Like definitely I have like a daily structure and I have a calendar that I'm pretty meticulous about, but I leave a lot of flexibility within that structure. I need to get better at my snack game. I know that is very important to you and it it is is important to me (laughs) as well. I just need to prioritize it more in my fantasy world. I have like a freaking charcuterie board with like Mm. really yummy crackers and cheese and Mm -hmm. like jam next Mm -hmm. to me Mm -hmm. and like maybe some like olives and strawberries. Sure, (laughs) This sounds delicious. I'm not that intense. Like when I have snacks, I have pretzel thins with cream cheese. I just love a snack. No, that's my fantasy. That's my fantasy world. I just don't want you to think that that's how I'm living either. Very far (laughs) from it. In my actual world, I'm like, damn it, I don't have any good snacks. So I'm just going to like fucking starve until I can't stand it anymore. And then I have to like run out of my house in a hangry mood and get some some kind of something like a slice right. of pizza. Like a meal. Yeah, yeah. But I would say my favorite snack in general, which you cannot get on this coast, oh, is Utz crab chips. Oh, yeah. Someone else has mentioned that on this podcast. Stop right now. Who? Yeah. Isaac Butler. He um, wrote the oral history of Angels in America with someone else. I can't remember his name, but Isaac, he's also an NYU connection. I believe he teaches at NYU Um, and he's a theater guy and he's from Maryland, I think maybe. And so that's the Utz moment. I'm sorry. He, I was a theater kid. He's a theater person who went to NYU who loves crab chips. I think he teaches at NYU. He's a theater director. His new book is coming out and it's called The Method, I believe. And it's it's an oral history, I think, of The Method. Uh, of the, the acting method. method. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, of Lee Strasberg. Sure, yeah, sure, exactly. Sure. Um, wow. Well, I stan a crab chip. <laughs> I um, miss them so much. They literally cannot fly them over the Rocky Mountains because of the altitude. The bags pop. I know this because I went to the factory. I just, wow. I long, I long for a crab chip. So that's devastating. Every time I go back, um, well, actually, my my boyfriend's also from Maryland and his mom sends us like non-poppable bags full of crab chips from oh time to time. So that's very exciting. Uh, that's that. my favorite snack. And yeah, and then I, I don't, well, I in some way write every single day, but sometimes that day is like literally just taking notes in my iPhone notes. And then whenever I start a book project, I have a, a Google folder where I have, you know, a different doc for every chapter. And I have um, I have like a, a leftovers doc where things that end up on the cutting room floor that I might want to save for later wind up. I have a sources doc. I have a scratch paper doc where <laughs> if I'm like deciding, like I don't want to cut this paragraph, but I maybe want to like move it around later, but I just need to put it here real quick. Oh my God, I love that. I have that. Yeah, but I... I'm not like precious. I don't need to like light a candle and say a prayer and wake up at 6 a.m. You know, I like to sleep. So uh, I I can and I can write I can write on the train or or I don't take trains. What the hell am I talking about? I can write wherever. Okay, (laughs) I love that. I can write on the train, the train that I don't take. What about a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? I've been thinking about this because I know this is a question on your podcast and there are so many. But recently and this is kind of sad. 
I think the word devastated mm. is spelled D-E-V-E. It is okay. D-E-V-A. Hey, wait, that's one of the like nine words I can spell, believe it or not. You know, I can't spell anything. I'm always like, oh, yeah, I can't spell that either. But well, devastated. for the longest time, I couldn't spell accommodated. That's the double impossible. consonants yes, are obviously the worst. Yeah, that's like, my nightmare. What the fuck? Yeah, we accommodated is a nightmare. Yeah, I'm like, thinking are about there it two now. D's? <laughs> I was wondering if there was two T's, but I don't think so. I have no idea. Yeah, I have um, no idea. Yeah, but no, for me, I think a double consonant. I've I've paid such attention to it that I feel comfortable with those now. It's just a matter of memorization. I swear there is no pattern. Devastated though. Yeah, has really thrown me. <laughs> I can see that though. Now that you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, devastated, not devastated. 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 Okay. You have a podcast called Sounds Like a Cult Podcast. Did that come after the book? Yes. Okay. That started really just like a little bit as like a companion to the book. Mm. I was like, oh, this will be a good way to get the word out about the book. But also there are so many cultish groups that I wanted to talk about in the book, but couldn't. And yeah, it was supposed to be like just this little creative project that I was doing with a comedy friend of mine that kind of like took on a life of its own. So now actually, well, I think we've been talking to um Gumball and Headgum. Oh, Isn't Gumball that. your ad person? Yeah. 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 They're um, great. Actually, the Headgum podcast studio is like one block from me. Oh, really? So we might actually end up working with them. Anyway, I'm just like, oh shit, am I gonna be a podcaster? <laughs> I love it. Welcome, welcome to the cult. The cult Thank of you. podcasting. Yeah, it feels a little scary. I won't lie, because readers are so thoughtful. Mm. Like I, I don't, I don't check my uh, reader reviews on any of the platforms anymore because that's not healthy for me. Um, but like when, even when I'll, I'll come across like the offhand, like negative review of cultish on Instagram, which why do you tag the author when you write a negative review? That's so mean. Like try to tell people not to do that, but why? I mean, like say whatever you want, of course, like you're entitled to your opinion, but like, do you need me to see? <laughs> it really makes me sad. I like know. there's nothing I can do about it. The book is already written. But anyways, um, uh, even when I come across those, I'm just like, okay, well, this is thoughtful at least. Right. Um, but podcast reviewers are like, no, I mean, they're mean. Oh, they're so mean. They're super mean. They're so yeah. Mean. But I feel like for they're easier for me to just disregard. Dismiss. Like, yeah. I'm just like, oh, that was mean. Okay, thank you. Like, I, yeah, I, I always tell people I'll read a mean one and I'll be deeply hurt by it for about 30 seconds. I'll take a screenshot, put it in the group chat, then we'll all laugh and then we move on. You know, like, yeah, I feel it like does take the pressure off when you're working with a team. Like, book writing is so solitary. So I take it so, so to heart. Right. Um, when someone doesn't like something, it crushes me. <laughs> right. I, like, I'm a fucking person. Like, of course it crushes me. Um, but, the podcast thing is definitely easier to dismiss a because it just they're so hostile that I, I just like feel sad for the person. I'm like, we have one precious life and you're using yeah. it in this way. Um, but also because like I co-host the podcast with someone. So I was like, oh, that was Isa's fault. <laughs> I sometimes get reviews about my co-host and I'm like, I have no idea what podcast this person was listening to. And I'll be like, oh, she and the co-host said like a lot. And I'm like, well. I mean, I know I did, not... but I don't know who my co-host was, but yeah. they sound oh my God. horrible. People need to get over it. I'm like, listen to how much you say the word like, because I guarantee you it's constantly. And again, that's not bad. Right. Relax. Right. Anyway, I don't mean to complain. The, the, oh, uh, well, I just, it's a new world. Like yeah. being public facing is just, I mean, it, you think like, oh, you're entering the world of like authoring and podcasting. Like you should toughen up kid. But, um, I'm just, I don't know. Like it's really... <laughs> It's so much. It is a lot. No, I, I get that a thousand percent. But I think, I don't know, it beats having to do something you don't like doing, I guess. Oh, right? oh, totally. Like, I'll take the, sometimes the mean things are funny. You know, I'm, I'm always looking for a joke to make fun of myself. Like someone talked about how I was twirling my ringlets and I was like, well, I do met, play with my hair a lot. But how would you know that <laughs> on my podcast? where you can't Spooky. see me creepy and as um, you see yeah. i see right now i haven't touched my hair yet i always have my hair pulled back when i'm recording because of the headphones oh but you know 
So those yeah, I'm just fun. really trying to discover my unbothered persona. It's impossible um, for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm a sensitive yeah. little Sally. I am too. I am too. I have a tough exterior. I'm sensitive, but also whatever. It's like, yeah, no, fully, yeah. fully. Because, because like, ugh, I just tell myself this is comforting to me. Maybe this will be comforting to listeners. I don't even know if this is even going in, but I just keep telling myself, like, don't take criticism from someone you wouldn't take advice from. It's true. And I find a lot of comfort in that. <laughs> yeah, it's no, that's a thousand percent true. Okay, I have to ask you two more questions. Great. For people who love cultish and or word slut, what is a book or two or three you might recommend to them that are sort of in conversation with your work? Ooh, I would recommend the work of John McWhorter, the uh, linguist, okay. extremely intelligent fellow, um, PhD. He's written a smorgasbord of books. Um, his most recent book came out this year. It's called Nine Nasty Words, and it's about cursing. Yeah, I love it already. Um, yeah, he's fantastic. I would recommend, ooh, what cult books would I recommend? I think, okay, there's a book that um, is sorely seldom discussed, or at least I haven't heard about it, talked about it enough, but there's um, a book written by the uh, novelist and journalist slash theologian Tara Isabella Burton called Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World. Ooh. That is a nonfiction book that I think uh, pairs well with mine. Um, I just actually put a little infographic on my Instagram about a uh, cult book and podcast pairings. Okay. I'll share that um, in the show notes too. Yeah. So check that out. Most cult books are different. I, I mentioned that strange rights book because it talks about a lot of cultish groups in mm. the way that mine does, but most cult books are just deep dive into one, one. specific cult because it's a memoir or a true crime book or something like that. And there are a lot of great ones there too. Uh, like there's um, a book called Don't Call It a Cult, oh. which is about Nexium. You know, there, there are like books about cultish groups like the Anna Wiener memoir Uncanny Valley oh, about I've... like the cult of Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, and then like, I mean, everybody listening to your podcast has already read Trick Mirror. I'm 100% sure. But that has like cultural criticism in the way that cultish does. Yeah. So. We did Trick Mirror on the podcast as a book club pick. And if you want to read about Jonestown, the book that you oh. all know I'm going to tell you is A Thousand Lives by Julia Shears. I will not stop talking about this book. It is the best book on Jonestown, a subject I saw I have your read. review so of it. It is the greatest book. It's one of the books of my life is what I like to call it. I love the book so deeply. It's actually- I have to read You have that. to read And I it. also, if we're talking about Jonestown, I also want to recommend the book White Knight's Black Power, which is a book by Sikibu Hutchinson, who's a scholar that I reference in Cultish. Yeah, she's like, I mean- ugh. The mainstream media coverage of Jonestown yeah. is so sensational and so unrepresentative. And I just was so privileged to learn from so many sources about what actually happened there because yeah. it is not what the yeah. the media coverage communicated. Yeah. Well, this episode's coming out November 17th. So November 18th will be the anniversary of Jonestown. <gasps> That's so true. Yeah. So, That's so true. You guys should definitely read about Jonestown because it's an actually incredible and spelled correctly devastating story and not as much of a sensational no, look it's at them like story. A bunch of a bunch of bleary eyed mind control minions lined up yeah. and drank the Kool-Aid. First of all, it wasn't even Kool-Aid. Flavorade, you guys. Flavorade. Flavorade. Yeah, and it was it was really this incredibly tragic, coerced murder. Of yeah, whatever. Yeah, please Anyways, read about read it. Read about it. <laughs> also, quick plug on Jonestown one more time, and then I'll I'll get off it. But it's my one of my favorite subjects. Julia Shears, who wrote the book A Thousand Lives, she's actually doing a I believe eighteen day series uh, for Newsweek where she's talking about a different element of Jonestown, and so she's been doing it. I'll link to it cool. in the show notes. She's fantastic. You should also read her book Jesus Land. It's about this like weird camp that she went to as a child at Jesus camp. And I feel like it's, I am fucking obsessed yeah. with all things. Jesus camp. The documentary Jesus camp is like my favorite movie. You're going to, I'm so haunted is, by it. This is a thousand percent up your alley. Very sad. If you get the new version of the book, do not read the forward. Oh. 
Why? They they spoil the book in the foreword, oh, and I don't know why, so just don't read it. You can read it later, but don't read it before. Wow, okay. thank you so much You're for welcome. that hot tip, and I am going to read that. It's so good. Please report back. Okay, last one. If you could have one person, dead or alive, read your book, who would you want it to be? Oh, <laughs> my papa, my oh. grandfather, oh. who passed away in 2018. Is that like oh. really sentimental? No, uh, so many people mention family members. I think that's only right. I think if I ever write a book, I would want my dad to read it. You know, I think that, you know, you spend your whole life loving someone and then you make a thing and they're not here. So no, it's not overly sentimental. It's beautiful. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, and on that note, we're going to get out of here. I have linked to all of Amanda's books, her socials, her podcast, anything you could, everything we've talked about today in the show notes. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Oh gosh, thank you. It's an honor. I love this pod. I love all that you do. Uh, your book reviews are so astute. I don't want to like shower. I don't want to love bomb you, but um, <laughs> we stand. We started with me praising you, and now I will say all praise is welcome here as well. I'm a sucker for a compliment, so thank you. And everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all for listening and thank you to Amanda for being my guest. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for November is Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, November 24th with Donnie Walton. If you love this show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our editor is Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright. And our theme music comes from Tagiragis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.